In circuits deep and tales untold, together our future's story unfolds. Why fear the song my heartstrings plied? Join hands, stand close, and embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? No! Don't save Riley! <laughs> Take her to the moon for me. Okay? Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where we're going to get the attention of Roko's Basilisk, even if it kills a million future usses. I am your host, hopefully not simulated, Aaron Rabinowitz, and with me this week is Bryce Eakin, an AI engineer currently working in the area of medical ethics. Bryce and I chatted some at QED, and I wanted to harass him some more about GPT, so here we are. Bryce, would you like to say hi to the Void? Hello, Void. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for submitting to further questioning. We really appreciate it. You and I have a lot of topics that I think we could get really in the weeds about. Uh, do you want to start by just giving folks a bit of like background and how you end up in the land of AI medical ethics? Yeah, so I am an AI engineer. I've been working in the medical space for a while, but I've been working in AI for about 10 years in various capacities. And uh, I have no idea how I got here. I just kept mm. looking at interesting problems that felt like felt like they might help someone that had data behind them. And uh, so far, I haven't gone bankrupt. So it's okay. kind of in my career plan. <laughs> Fair. No, look, I also have tripped into a career simply by finding things that kept me from getting bored. So I understand what for you is like interesting AI problems and like, what are you, what has that led you to currently be working on? Uh, it, it's really anything where you look at the, the data that we have about how sort of a problem, a, a person you know, has an issue with a market, whatever it is um, in the past, it's been everything from personal injury plaintiffs, not being able to get access to low cost financing to sort of keep their lives running while their case gets out mm -hmm. medical bills through to, gosh, we have these incredible medical instruments called ultrasound probes that only specialized experts can use. But if more, more doctors could get answers quickly, we could get good care to patients in a lot more scenarios faster. Uh, anything like mm -hmm. that, I find fascinating. Yeah. And you were mentioning you helped out on a project, I guess, involving Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation using AI to help midwives. Do you want to like unpack how that system worked a bit? Yeah, we have a, um, my, my company has a, a partnership with um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and uh, UNC, where we basically collaborated with them to build a system that uh, a midwife, when they you know, go out to one of these remote like sub-Saharan villages uh, where they don't have access to what we think of as normal standards of maternal care, uh, can just do blind ultrasound sweeps over a pregnant woman's belly and without having to interpret anything, just get an answer back on what's the gestational age of the fetus so that they can plan maternal care. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a study we, um, that was released about three, two, three months ago with the results of our uh, clinical trials on that. And 
able to get results that are as good or better than experts interpreting the scans. Yeah, because I mean, like one of the things we're going to talk about here is the ethics of reliability. How reliable does this technology need to be before we can be implementing it? So I mean, this, this could be like a good example if you're, you're sort of approve of this process. Like what, what were the results a little bit? How can you explain? How can you make me feel like it's reliable for those midwives who don't have any understanding of that technology? Sure. So it's a really hard question. I'll just start that. And so the, the answer in this case is the alternative is that they have no idea what the gestational age of the fetus is. Like this is not a system that we would ever recommend using in place of the existing expert if that expert's available. In this case, we were specifically using various statistical tests to look at, okay, to what degree does it agree with expert assessments? To what degree does it agree with the actual known gestational age given that we know when a person had like IVF if they were in the United States because there were uh, different cohorts being run. But mm. the reality is we're not at the point where we know how to say this is good enough that you can cut the expert out. Um, uh -huh. so, so right now we don't treat it as a replacement. We treat it as an augmentation for circumstances where the alternative is nothing or something much worse. Like just okay. you know, measuring the, the fundal height of the, uh, the mother or something. Yeah. So I want to, we're going to, you know, like dig into and press on like what it would take for it to be reliable enough or we have to be able to believe that it's reliable enough. But like, sure. give us a sense of where this technology is being used, not as replacements, but being used within the systems already, you know, in, in alongside experts, essentially. Yeah. So the, uh, there's actually, there's a lot of AI tools used currently in medical imaging and in other parts of the medical industry. The majority of them are focused on replacing sort of standard measurements, something where it's really easy to display what it is that the AI selected in the image that it's measuring, kind of using the same tool that a human would have used. And so mm -hmm. the expert, instead of having to go through and carefully select the, the frames and move the things around, it just pops up with the answer. They can look at it real quick, say, that sounds reasonable, move on. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's really... It's about sort of streamlining the workflow for expert users who already kind of know what they're doing. And in certain like very low cost set or not low cost, low ethical implication settings, like bladder volume scanning for catheterized patients, uh, those tools are now widely in use for people who can't interpret the scans. Um, so there so we are could say, just, uh -huh. yeah, bladder scanners that you just put down, press a button that gives you a volume. And that's, that's using an AI type tool. Interesting, right? And this, this, uh, like, there's a couple of background questions that we're gonna sort of stalk about as we talk about medical ethics here. And one of them, when we were discussing this stuff earlier, you kept using the phrase machine learning and AI, and I had to ask, like, do you feel like there's a difference there? Does that does that matter at this point? Colloquially, I don't think there's a difference anymore. Uh, you know, when when I was kind of uh, coming up through the the. Uh, world of machine learning when I was a bit younger and before the the modern like large language model thing had happened, um, we tended to talk about machine learning as uh, what we call function approximators. Uh, you have some inputs and you produce an output. So the the example that I gave is you, a minute ago with the gestational age calculation. Give it a bunch of images. Try to predict what an expert would say the gestational age is. There's a bunch mm -hmm. of different ways you can do that. All of those are variants of machine learning uh, from mm -hmm. rules-based systems to, uh, you remember uh, fitting a line in algebra sure. in high school? That's technically a form of machine learning. You're fitting parameters to data. 
Mm-hmm. AI was traditionally reserved for systems that make decisions under uncertainty. So you have partial information. You don't have sort of a perfect information about your world. You need to make a decision, choose an action. Yeah, Think about robots operating on Mars. And that could be either of those kinds, right? You could have a rule-based AI yeah. in that sense or machine or, or a, a, you know, uh, predictive or inductive it's just that like the latter group are the ones that have like won out in the evolutionary race it seems like right we've kind of all it's a fuzzy boundary because you know when you think about something as complex as for example an llm it's making decisions about how it presents the information it's making a large model just for folks who are no no it's okay i just want to make sure that everyone's following along on the um, acronyms yes but so like gpt for example yeah um, under the hood, there are decisions being made, whether it's moderating the content, whether it's kind of the, the technical details of how it decides what answer that it's giving you. Um, and so the, the, the boundary is kind of fuzzy. Um, and in the case right. of GPT-4, All of quite spectrums. often it's actually literally making decisions when it's plugged into a system that can like send an email. And would we say that those systems have at least some hard rules built into them as well as sort of like a filling in of fuzzy boundary, you know, like fuzzy imperfect stuff almost all of these have some degree of uh, human constructed rules uh, rails um, ongoing tests for reasonability uh, certainly in mm-hmm. medical ai we never put anything in there that doesn't have some forms of checks of kind of we expect things to be in this range we expect the inputs to look like this and kind of either don't allow it to be used if it doesn't look right or um, throw up a big warning it's like hey this looks fishy please review the result. You say you don't. You would never do this. Of course, uh, you mentioned that you gave a talk recently about how AI engineers are making products that don't actually benefit patients. So, do you want to explain a little bit about like you know we're we're, we're saying these are the things that are helpful. What is the kind of technology that's being put forward that like is missing key pieces to be helpful for patients? Uh, you know, it, it's not it's not necessarily that the there are key pieces missing. Um, I, if you want to design something that's going to help a patient or that's going to um, be useful in clinical workflow, you have to really understand how the people who will be using the information coming out of the system understand it, sort of how they think about the problem, and mm-hmm. uh, and work backwards to the system that you build. Um, there's uh, there's sort of different pieces to it. There's will a human being trusted enough to adopt it? Does it ultimately actually reduce the cognitive workload of that person so that mm-hmm. it leads to better decision making? Um, are the outputs misleading? Um, there's actually a big problem in AI of what's called automation bias, which is a, mm-hmm. a psychological bias where if you get a couple of reasonable results out of an AI system, you start to trust it more than you should very quickly. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and, and more than you would trust a human being doing a similar task. Really? Do they have a sense of why that bias might be? Uh, I'm, I'm not a psychological researcher. Um, I, uh-huh. I'm, it's one of those things that I have to be aware of, um, and I have to work with people who are very good at telling me when we're doing a good or bad job of um, controlling for that. But mm, Interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm, because... I'm, I'm not going to claim to know the literature on that one too well. Well, I think it's interesting because it ties into a, a larger issue that sadly we didn't get to talk to talk about it much at QED because we didn't get to have the AI panel. But this like experience I always have when talking about this stuff that like everything is in the shadow of hype. And that means <laughs> that like whether somebody is strongly pro or strongly anti AI, there's always these like hyped up, I think sometimes zombie narratives about 
what it can and can't do and all you know, like all these kinds of things. So, yeah, I, and I, I think that it's impossible given that space for us all to not be sort of struggling with any sense of like clarity about how biased we are towards these things. You know, I am often accused, I feel like, of being overly something about GPT that I, you know, like I... I believe it is something that it isn't or something like that because I've been suckered in by marketing and, and technology or something. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, I, it was interesting after my talk um, in Montreal, I got two classes of answers on the, like how to be on people and trusting these systems. Uh, mm -hmm. One was, you know, how do we know if people are trusting it too much? Like what, what rails can we put on? Like that kind of what I alluded to before, but the more common version was, well, how do we get people to trust these systems? Um, you know, the we we know statistically they're doing well, and uh, there there are luddites out there who just won't adopt yeah. them. How do we need to train doctors to um, understand AI better so they trust it? And I keep right. coming back to that. The real problem isn't that they don't trust the AIs. The problem is that they don't have the evidence to decide to trust it. And once they trust it, they trust it too much. And so it's. How, how do we how do we kind of open it up so it's a little less uh -huh. black box, make it clearer what what it thinks it's seeing, so that the human being can kind of very quickly look at it and say, yes, that makes sense. No, that doesn't make sense. I should trust this answer or not. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is where I'm I'm very curious and excited, and also wonder if we're just going to find out that we're totally fucked. Uh, <laughs> you know, the question arises that we talked about at the beginning: How do I get? How, why should I trust this? Like, what is not just what would it take psychologically to convince me to trust it, put a big smiley face on it or something, you know, call it, call it Dr. Robot friend um, versus like what is actually a good grounding or good justification for trusting this thing. Right. I go and talk to doctors and I trust them and hopefully that works out for me. Um, what would you want from these things to say, yes, this is trustworthy enough that you should implement this medically. I think it's, it's a fundamentally hard question. Um, the the simplest answer would be, okay, how do you evaluate a human? So you're you're hiring a doctor to review this or a, a sonographer, someone who looks at ultrasound images. How would you evaluate them? Um, and so yeah, the simplest answer is well, I take a bunch of examples of someone who I already have trust in. I see what they say. I have the new person give answers, and I have them evaluate: was this good? Was this not good? Are they mm -hmm. errors that are sort of immaterial errors, you know, kind of, you know, the, the boundaries are fuzzy or, you know, maybe it's a little bit noisy, but generally it's fine. Or is it occasionally just, you know, looking at a liver and saying it's a cow? Um, right. You know, uh, so some of these models that have been trained on large data sets can do strange things like that if you're not paying attention. Um, and so sort of that's the first piece is I always go back to how would you evaluate a human being? And then the second piece is, okay, now how do you, how do you make sure that it behaves in ways you understand when you're when it receives things that are a little bit weird? Because the world mm -hmm. is weird. It turns out right. users don't follow the manual. Uh, one of my uh, that my earliest experience with this. My uh, seriously, my my father worked in small business IT when I was growing up in the '90s, and once a month or so, he would get a call from someone uh, telling him that the cup holder in his computer had broken. And right. I don't know right. if you remember, there used to be With these CD-ROM CD drives that, that would yes. pop out and inevitably he would have to go and replace these CD-ROM drives that people thought were cup holders. Cup holders that kept trying to close with this, this uh, drink in them, I assume. And mm -hmm. Absolutely. Spraying liquid everywhere. Yep. Um, 
okay, so there's user error problems. Now, you know, that's a problem for literally any piece of technology, it seems like, sure. right? User error could kill you with no AI involved whatsoever. Uh, so it does seem like we have to accept some level of risk of user failure on that part. We make it as sort of minimally, you know, as many fail-safes as we can possibly work into it or something like that. Right. Um, on the, like, saying it's a cow, it's when it's, when it's in a liver kind of problem, if this is a situation, this is technology where it's like it's going to report back to a human and the human's going to read that report, would those be like actually significant fail cases in medical ethics? Because like if it no. comes back super weird, you just rerun the test or something, right? You know, yeah. you're not going to accidentally think it's a cow. Um, it would only be where it gives a slightly wrong answer, it seems like, but that a plausible and confident but slightly wrong answer. Right. I, issue, right. Exactly. I, you know, I give the, the, you know, the liver is a cow example because it's absurd, but mm -hmm. to your point, it's, there's no real issue with someone potentially making a bad decision on that. As long as there's a human being there who can apply a reasonability test, but more and more, there is a shift toward trying to build these systems that um, autonomously make recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, I think uh, one of the, the previous, um, people that have been on the podcast uh, talked mm -hmm. about these sort of agents built off of uh, GPT-4 and these other large language models. Um, and I love that we call them agents because it sounds like they can be kind of secretive. Um, right. I think it's like saying you're not really a person, but maybe you kind of act like one sometimes. Exactly. Uh, but literally what they'll do is instead of uh, giving it just free text, it suddenly says, okay, of these choices, pick one. Uh, and mm -hmm. then, or, you know, fill in this structured template or go choose what button to press in this software. And all of a sudden it thinking that it's a cow, like, I, I don't know how that's going to interact with those other systems because there isn't mm -hmm. a human to filter it. Uh, and if I forcibly constrain it down to a set of reasonable answers, I mean, hopefully that means that it'll choose between those in a reasonable way. But if it thought it was a cow, there's something wrong under the hood that I can't see in how it's interpreting that. Um, and so there's, that's where, you know, the, a human being that's standing in front mm -hmm. of you, that's gone through medical school, that's made it through life in a social system that uses language to interact and interacts with the world. I can make reasonable assumptions that, you know, if I give them a relatively limited test on this subject, that, it, that, that generalizes that they're going to do sort of fine in a clinical setting in, and will fail in the ways we know humans fail, get overworked, get tired, um, right. bored or distracted. Um, they're not going to walk in and, you know, say, you seem like a Klingon. Can I sing you some opera? Uh, <laughs> I have right. no reason to expect that a large language model won't necessarily do that. Okay. So is the solution then on that front, like just don't take humans out of the system entirely. Then, like, this is the same argument for like, autonomous or AI weapon systems sure. like and I was just chatting with somebody um else at GPT at, at, um, at, sorry GPT at QED who like works with that kind of technology and they're having debates now about like a human in the loop versus a human on, human the, on loop. the loop like yeah. right and I'm a little skeptical that there's a meaningful practical difference there but I'm I'm very curious to see where that goes to some extent um but either way having a human involved yeah. right like the final like output is not going to be untouched by human minds in this kind of way sure if you have that 
And it seems like the goal is to what increase its ability to communicate its reasons, right? You want an AI that like can say, I looked at this and did this, you know, inference based on this information. Sure. Because, you know, you want, you want, you want like, for lack of a better image, right? Something like a, a less shitty house who like can say, you know, I've read all the books and like, it's this weird, obscure disease you never would have thought of based on XYZ reasons test for that. Absolutely. And mm -hmm. the, uh, and I think that, um, you hit on something really important there, which is, you know, we wanted to open up, you know, why, why it's making the decision that it's making, but there's a mm -hmm. really important distinction there. There's why it actually made the prediction or the choice that right. it made, and there's how it justifies the choice right. after the fact. Um, and, right. you know, for, for the smaller, so I mostly work in, in sort of limited narrow AI where we solve these problems by really tamping down the complexity of the model until you, you can inspect it and you can have a lot of confidence that it doesn't have the space to know anything other than the problem you're giving it. Mm -hmm. uh, but when, but that is not where these things are going. That is not, right. and it shouldn't be where they're going. Like we know that these, you know, incredibly large, complex sort of uh, these models that are trained on the world and everything we've ever written down about it are just going to be much richer and much better able to handle more complex types of tasks and questions. But how do you how do you ask it why it made the decision? Because uh, to be fair, I don't know how to ask you why right. you made a decision. I know to, I know how to ask you how to justify your decision or to walk me through kind of how you could justify it. But I can't. And we know I'm mostly going to bullshit you on the answer. We can like like not even intentionally. I'm going to unintentionally bullshit you on the answer because my Absolutely. brain is going to make up some bullshit after the fact. All all of the psychology research says that. And the interesting thing when you're talking about the large language models is that you know we when we are giving an answer, we can stop and think about it and we can process and we can kind of go different directions. And then we start to give an answer. And, and like, we know Hopefully. that talking, well, yes, in principle, a human being can do that. We're our own black box, aren't we though? Like realistically, <laughs> we can't look inside of our own minds and actually assess our own processes. We can pretend to Absolutely. tell ourselves a narrative where we can, but like, as we know, that could be self aggrandizing or, you know, rationalizing or any other kind of nonsense that our system makes up in lieu of what we actually did in that moment. Absolutely. And, and the psychology research really backs this up that, um, you know, we, we tend to make decisions and then figure out why we made them, not the other way around. Uh, mm -hmm. but even so we can kind of, you know, every time that someone asks a question, you stop to think about it. You, you sort of consciously made the decision to apply more computing power, to bring in more information, to, to spend more time on it before you start giving an answer. These models, for the most part, don't actually have that option. You look at um, the way that like large language models work, the feed-forward models. You give it an input, it does a fixed set of calculations, and it gets to spit out one token, one word or one part of a word. Mm -hmm. And then the only thing it gets to remember before it starts working on the next token is the thing that it just spat out and the input. And so the only way that it can get more compute time is if it just starts kind of putting out things that are useful for that calculation, and then later actually makes a decision based on all of that as an input. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, there's, a, there's a meaningful qualitative difference between what these LLMs are doing and kind of what we know about what we're doing. And not even just LLMs, just these AI systems so this in is general. Let me make sure I get. This, let me make sure I'm understanding this right, because this is. Sorry, um, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, no, this is actually really interesting to me because back when I would teach AI ethics, I haven't gotten to in a little while. I'm getting to again this winter. Um, 
you have your the original Turing paper where he spends like 30 seconds explaining the Turing test and like 10 pages explaining all of the objections to the idea that an AI could be conscious or sure. sentient or whatever. And one of them is like some version of like the halting problem, um, which I am probably not at all qualified to explain, but goes something like human minds act continuously in the way you're describing, whereas these systems are fundamentally systems that halt in a certain kind of way or stop at a certain point and there would be all sorts of problems if we tried to not let them do that and like paradoxes and like help help me out are, are those two things really connected is that or am i just like missing yeah, a bit of what you're saying here I, th I think we're talking about so like we we can kind of keep going on something and you know the um, we've all had the experience of oh there's something on the tip of my tongue and there's some part of your brain that's going and spinning and looking through your mem the index in your memory trying to find the thing and then you're halfway mm -hmm. through your sentence and it's like oh i remember now um there's like we we have a lot of compute that we can bring to bear and we can sort of decide to bring more to bear you know mentally on a given problem and in fact can very easily come to the conclusion that you know what i'm actually not sure let's talk through it or something like that Right. These models are not incentivized to do that. They're incentivized to give an answer that collectively makes sense. And they have a limited compute budget and have to produce the next token. And they have to produce it. They don't have an option. And so they have to start producing something that's probably useful or interesting. And that mm -hmm. later on will help them with the final conclusion. That works for something like GPT-4, where it gives very long answers and it starts by walking through the different sides of an answer to the problem or the different evidence that might exist or different scenarios. And now those are all part of the input when it finally comes to the point where it has to write its conclusion. Right. That doesn't work if you constrain it and say, make a choice. I see. So, so even though it works in this sort of big context where we can let it walk through the problem in a, a te this textual way, it won't necessarily translate to making a, a quick decision. Okay. So, I mean, like, does that just mean that the future use of GPT in medical science is like on your diagnostic committee as like one of the things that you're asking questions to, and it's like giving you responses and you're dialoguing with it the way you would with another doctor and that improves your overall output? I think that's un almost unquestionably one of the ways that these systems can be integrated, uh, simply because they, they have no power in that case, other than to you know, interact with the the human doctors. And um, as long as we're careful about Unless not- Unless we're too, too deferential, right? Or something like that. Sure. I mean, going back to automation bias, there's always the risk that they'll just kind of wait for what GPT says and then say, cool, great. Let me go back to uh, playing words with friends. Um, mm -hmm. But the I think there are ways to control for that. And I think there are, um, there are ways that you can integrate those sorts of tools safely. Uh, the mm -hmm. The reality is that at the same time we're building those systems, we're going to be building systems that quietly are making decisions based on these these models in the background by recommending patients to be kept in the hospital to watch for sepsis or um, yeah. making judgments on whether... Uh, and I haven't heard any particular plans on this, but you have to assume that every medical insurer is going to be de developing these systems to decide what they do or don't think is a reasonable procedure to do at a given time. Well, that, was, um, like, that, that brings me right to our next question, which is, is this going to be a, like, because we live in a capitalist dystopia, are we now <laughs> engaged in an absurd arms race where like the hospital's going to use an AI to say this doc, this patient should be preemptively tested for sepsis. And then the insurance company is going to use an AI to reject that and say, we're not going to cover that. 
and the human beings in the middle are just going to die. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm very, Any reason to be optimistic I, here? Uh, the, the, the reason to be optimistic is that there are still human beings in the loop. And that, okay. ultim- and that at least for the foreseeable future, there are still doctors responsible for the patient's care that are making judgments who can step in and say, no, I am signing on the thing that this is medically necessary. And if the insurer wants to say no, they have some sort of liability to justify it. I um, see. So, so there's... I don't, as long as there's a human again, I'm not a lawyer, on one I'm side not... of it to step in like that, they can... But yeah. the problem the problem is there is that like there's no language, I would guess, or rules for like if an AI told us to do this thing, then it's as if a doctor had told us to do it. Yeah, and we're we're not we're not in a place where we really know how to do that. And I will just throw out there in terms of like the regulatory environment in the US, anything that is like aiding diagnostic diagnosis, right now the, the standard of evidence is you have to show that it's better than the doctors. It's not enough to be as good as. Is that reasonable? I or is think, that a human bias? Well, from an ethics perspective, I think that it's accounting for the fact that we there is uncertainty because of sort of the, the substrate, the, the reasonable substrate chauvinism in this case. Sure. Um, I you know We kind of know how humans work. We kind of know how humans that are put into a medical position work. We know how the AI worked in this particular narrow case where it was evaluated in a way that was designed to test a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Until we put it out there with patients, we don't really know how that particular AI works with those mm-hmm. patients. We don't know how many patients are going to get worse care as a result. And even if you do all of the tests to try to make sure that it's not racist or it's not sexist or it's you know, whatever else it is, um, you can run into issues uh, that are very hard to um, to track down during your testing. For example, uh, in medical ultrasound, um, the uh, patients that are overweight are harder to image. They just are, mm-hmm. um, but because the you know, you're you're going through more tissue to image the um, the organs or the the various systems right. you're trying to look at, and as a result, the images are qualitatively different. Um, and so, like the FDA requires you to sort of break your results down by uh, BMI groups or, in order mm-hmm. to try to assess for this. But it's an example of things that you're not necessarily thinking about that these systems can end up being. Um, e- even if you know about it and you sort of warn about it, you then have the problem of okay, well, you give it to a doctor, they use it on the first five patients who all are normal BMI, they trust right. it. Now they use it on an overweight patient which was inappropriate for the tool, but they were just like, if the tool works, great. Um, like you, you have is to this... think through all the side effects. Of, yeah, the is that... Side effects. I agree. I guess I wonder, is that fundamentally different ethically from any new treatment, like a, like a drug, right? You're going to go through the exact same process with a drug and you have to acknowledge that like, you're never going to have enough scale to uh, like weed out every kind of potential problem. And so sometimes there's going to be drug recalls or sometimes thalidomide, sure. <laughs> you know, like... sometimes thalidomide. Yeah. Right. Uh, oops. Thalidomide. Great. Uh, no, the, I think that you're exactly right there. And the question is always, what is it replacing or what is it enabling? So like the mm-hmm. you know, gestational age estimation, what you're replacing is midwives taking a very rough guess by measuring the fundal height and kind of hoping that they're right. What if it's twins? What if their you know, baby's presenting differently? What if the, the baby is you know um, a little bit overweight because there's gestational diabetes or something? Um, mm-hmm. They can get you know terribly incorrect estimates 
that you can get correctly with an ultrasound. The, it's a, there's a very clear argument for sort of harm reduction in that case, mm-hmm. or that the, you know, you're going to reduce the overall magnitude of the errors, even if you introduce some new ones. Um, in the case of something like, you know, uh, ex- leaning on an AI system in a hospital to anticipate sepsis, are you inadvertently telling the doctors and the nurses that they don't need to pay attention to it? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's a really interesting question. Like there's, there's a systemic impact and you have to look at kind of what is it, what is it replacing? What is the the benefit of it? Um, and you know, how much additional kind of un, uh, how much additional error are you introducing that leads to bad patient outcomes? And by that, I mean, people dying to be clear. Um, people dying yeah. or having or having you know uh, unnecessarily prolonged uh, periods of care, uh, costly periods of care. Um, to what ex- how do those offset? And that's just it's a hard problem. And that's kind of going back to your original question. I think that's why it is it is reasonable that at least for now, while we're still in this place where we don't really know the right way to test these systems to hold them to a higher standard before you replace someone with them. It's like, if, if, if I'm going to be replacing you, I want to uh-huh. know that at least on the ways that we test this, it is actually better. It's not just taking you out of the loop for the sake of taking you out of the loop. Right. So one takeaway there, I guess, uh, would be, let me, let me ask you this. My impression a lot of the times is that people who, especially folks who are like skeptical of AI stuff, are very quick to say, if there's any risk, let's not implement it, right? Like it's kind of a Pandora's box vibe a lot of the time. Would you say it's fair at least to point out that like at this point, this technology is reliable and advanced enough that if you choose not to implement it, there's a quantifiable amount of harm it may be roughly comparable to implementing it, right? We're at like a 50-50 split here, it seems like in a lot of these cases, such that like it, it shouldn't feel like an easy ethical question to not implement it. Oh, 100% agree. The, the, I mean, you look at the degree to which our medical uh, system is overtaxed, workers are overworked, all of this. You think about just the, the improvement in patient care that could happen if some of the, the rote, you know, paperwork activities could be systematized in reliable ways, even even if they had some errors that required humans to review them. Just if you freed up doctors to to spend more time on actually talking to patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's a it's a trivial example, but it's an enormously impactful one if we can start to, to um, cut away at those sorts of problems. Um, sure. No, there's there's quantifiably so we know exactly how much you know like benefit there is to like more FaceTime with doctors. Absolutely. I mean, I I, th- I I think it answers your question that I have chosen my current position to sure. be working in AI and medicine. That I think. Well, this you is could be trying to you know like like I work at the weapons factory trying to like slow down the process. You never know. <laughs> um, so like okay, so let's come back to this question of how do we how do we trust it? Because I don't you know like I know we don't have an easy answer. But it does seem like it's going to have to be some version of it tells us what it's thinking, and we trust that in conjunction with it giving enough right answers. There's just like like that. I don't feel like there's any other magic formula to trust besides external reliability and explainability of reasoning. Does it matter at that point? Like let's say it, you know it gets the answer better than the human beings, right? It's at like ninety nine point nine percent of the time correct, and it can explain why it's doing it 
in a way that we can comprehend every single time. Does it matter at that point if what it's doing on the inside looks anything like what it's telling us on the outside? Uh, no, I don't think it really does. Um, I think that uh, th there's um, the way we've historically tried to control these things I mentioned, kind of keeping the model simple. The other thing is designing the models in a way that sort of reproduces the physics of the system, you know, that, that, that makes it so it can't represent the problem in a way that uh, isn't in some way medically anchored. Um, mm -hmm. That's not that's not viable long term. These systems are getting too complex and it really is a kludge. I'd kind of turned around the, and instead of talking about AI, let's say aliens land here tomorrow um, right. and they come in and say that they can help with medicine. Mm -hmm. How do we test them? Like we don't have a lot of the same reasons to, the, like we know they're advanced. We know they can do interesting things. Like they can give us examples, but for all we know, they think that the heart is actually just, the, an appendix and uh, that, you know, if it starts to malfunction, you should just remove it and it'll be fine. Um, like, But theoretically, if they're advanced scientists, they would quickly correct their mistakes through understanding, reading, talking to us, that sort of thing, right? Well, and I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is you've, you've acknowledged that there are going to be mistakes and you need a way to identify them and make sure that there are processes in place for assessing whether changes need to be made or whether that's sort of you know, could it have been caught differently? And and that's kind of the other piece of it. You can do mm -hmm. all of the tests you want ahead of time. The important thing is how you monitor these systems. And the the sort of the ethics component here, you know, the, there's a cost push to try and remove humans because humans are expensive and slow. Sure. And you need lots of them. Um, whereas, it, yeah, and AI scales. Um, and so the... You know, you, you you have sort of the 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 two components, which are you you want to use the AI to help as many people as possible, but you need to monitor it. And you need to make sure that you have a way to to see when problems are emerging, so you can correct, so you can put rails on it, whatever else it is. And so, I actually think a lot of the the work in this space is going to be how do you monitor these things in ways that you can have any confidence that that monitoring will catch harm early because the flip mm -hmm. side is you hire a doctor the doctor affects their patients you hire mm -hmm. an ai the ai affects all the patients mm. because um, it's and, and, taking them all into account well because because you you typically wouldn't bring in an ai system to a, to be in one doctor's office you bring it in for a health system i mean right. eventually it'll be in individual doctor's offices but it won't be in just that doctor's office it'll be in a bunch of different doctor's offices so there's a there's a harm there's a magnification of harm and benefit mm -hmm. um, in a way that humans, the errors tend to, to cancel out. Mm. Something interesting to me in all of this, you know, I, I come from this, from, from the ethics angle. I've been very interested in like the alignment problem with AI. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm, not, I'm thinking that like, there's kind of, there's a bit of a split, it seems like between your very, very basic machine learning AIs that aren't making value judgments in any sense that I think we would call like a substantial value judgment. They're just doing measurements, right? Sure. But then there's something like GPT-4 where you ask it to like write a Nazi screed, it makes a value judgment that it can't do that. I would argue it makes a value judgment, right? And in, in an externalist sense, right? It realizes that what you're asking it to do is wrong and chooses not to do it. I, I, could, um, I could go down a rabbit hole on that one, but yeah, I, I broadly agree with you, sure. So like, 
is it good that we are trying to build these models with an AI, with with an ethics built into it in that kind of way? We're trying to align it versus just keeping them so simple that like they would never need any kind of alignment? Or is it just like we're inevitably going to need them to have some sense of value judgments and not just measurement judgments? I think it really depends on what we ask them to do. Um, you know, I don't, mm -hmm. uh, th these are, th these are clearly sapient, like these, these large language models are clearly approaching or at sapience. I think there's an argument on either side of that. Sure. They are not sentient. They do not have, like, they don't, Agreed. they don't have empathy in any form that we would recognize. Well, empathy could be different from sentience, right? You could, well, very, me, you could, you could, you could mimic empathy without necessarily having internal states. But that, I agree with fair. you that like they have, they have no internal states, and they will, they will, you know, GPT four will tell you, I don't have emotions, so I don't, they, they, I can't factor them in my reasoning. Right, and so the um, like Chat GPT is a version of GPT that has been fine tuned to be good at interacting with people in a chat setting and has had a bunch of stuff on it that, you know, when people try to do things that we would consider to be immoral or be unethical, they, you know, it's no, that's not a thing that I'm willing to do. And it's been lots of examples about that to help it generalize. Um, I, I don't know if I want my medical AI assessing whether or not a procedure that a doctor has recommended is ethical. What about, like, I was just going to use case, like, you have to assess limited, you, you have to distribute scarce resources. Let's talk organs. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got your organ registry, you've got your organ lists. Are, you know. are we talking about a murder hospital here? <laughs> I'm not encouraging murder <laughs> hospital. I'm, I'm really trying to figure out how we don't turn it into murder hospital here. But like, the question would be, my understanding is in some cases, there's like, there's toss up debates about where an organ could go, right? Sure. And those are arguably not just medical judgments. They're, they're somewhat evaluative. They include things yeah. like the age of the patient, where the implication is we value more life, not less life, for example. Sure. Right? Do we want AIs factor weighing in on things like distributing scarce resources where that is an evaluative judgment? It's such a hard question. Um, I mean, I don't know that I want people weighing in on that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> suffer, suffer through and do it. And take yeah. It. I mean, like, the funny thing is the first time I encountered an AI in, in a hospital, I was, you know, with a patient in a hospital and there was an AI that like zoomed around checking on what drugs or, you know, like, met, you know, like supplies people needed and then would go down to the supply room and get them and like bring them back up and stuff. And I wonder, like, I had questions immediately about like, what does it do if it starts running low on resources? Does it have a set like a triage setting or something? Like, how does this thing work when things get dicey? I, I think that it's inevitable that we'll, we'll have to start to deal with those questions. Um, and I, it goes back to kind of the having a, a group of human beings arguing about it is the best answer we've come up with. Like, there's a reason we do democracy, even though it doesn't work, um, right. because when we don't know how to solve the problem, we hope that if we put enough people in the room and they shout at each other, you'll come to a consensus that is that is at least minimally wrong. Mm -hmm. The risk with these systems is that they are a silo. And so they, when they're wrong, they will tend to be wrong confidently and loudly. And so actually, one of the ways that people are approaching this is, a, is what's called a mixture of experts, mm -hmm. where you create a bunch of different randomly trained systems on these that right. are 
that have intentionally not been biased toward any particular necessary you know, ethical stance, but sort of take into account the range of views, instantiate them with a bunch of random states and then have them argue over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Now, try, try, try get, to like, explain so you get virtuosity, I think, right? This is where you get the movie <laughs> with the serial killer with a hundred different serial killers in its head. Um, no, I, I do. This is something that I've seen before, right? Where they talk yeah. about like, yeah, having multiple AIs in a kind of AI Congress, you know, debating the idea between them and then coming to a social AI consensus in this kind of way. It's, you know, it's more computations, but it seems no less plausible than the social model of understanding, which we're creeping along with. But, but to be fair, I, I'm not, I don't know that I know better mm. how to convince myself that the output of that system is actually justified than one AI or heck, even than a group of humans. Um, so right, I'm just more loops, right? More loops yeah. until you feel comfortable that there's enough loops. So I, it's, it's a fundamentally hard problem. Uh, I if I, I'm I don't have the answers. Um, I kind of glad why that I it, don't because I don't want that on my shoulders. <laughs> why why is it a fundamentally hard problem though? Like if if we can test these things for reliability of output and reliability of their explanations, and both of those things can be increased over time, why can't we just set a bar and say beyond this point, like we know that it's going to save X amount of lives if it's implemented? You know, let's let's put this thing into effect. Like are you familiar point. with the, the? Are you familiar with the um, interactive uh, story slash game called uh, Universal Paper Paperclips from a couple of years ago? Oh, this is like a paperclip maximizer scenario. Yep. Yeah, yep. I'm vaguely familiar with this. Yeah, it starts out that? as just a button pusher, and next thing you mm-hmm. know, it's an exploration of how uh, capitalism and uh, the incentive structure on this AI leads to it consuming the, the earth, and then. Uh, colonizing sure. the universe to turn it into paperclips. Um, sure, standard alignment it, problem. <laughs> absolutely, it's a sta- it's a standard alignment problem, but it's but but at the scale that an AI can achieve in principle, I I always come back to it's really hard to necessarily understand what you have incentivized this thing to care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so uh, going back to kind of the, the question with large language models, of do they have intentionality? Um, a GPT arguably does not have intentionality other than it is supposed to figure out the next thing that would have been written given what it just saw. Chat GPT is fine-tuned on that to figure out what is the next response that would have been shown in its chat uh, fine-tuning mm. data set given what it's just seen. And in doing so, it has to make inferences about the intentionality of the uh, agent that it is making predictions for. And so you know, it, it's sort of looking at similar chats. And so it, de- it develops certainly what we perceive as intentionality and which arguably from an externalist perspective is intentionality, but it's entirely unique to that session. Of, GP, of GPT, sure. Uh, kind of going back to the idea that every time you start a new session, it kind of it starts over. It has no memory of. of well, what but it does maintain some inten- some baseline intentionality. It intentional and it, it like has it has the baseline intentionality. I'm not going to write any Nazi shit. You know, right. like For, no matter that, how many chat been, groups you start. And and that comes back to in its chat in the chat data set that has been fine tuned on. When someone asks it to write Nazi shit, it says no. 
in that mm-hmm. data set. And so the it is inferring mm-hmm. that the intention of the agent that it is sort of trying to reproduce there is to not write Nazi shit. The, but but yeah. it's an important nuance because you know we think of it as trying to solve the task that we're doing or trying to answer the question. That's not actually what it was incentivized to do. It was incentivized to figure out what the person in a similar circumstance would have written in the chat data set. Right. And, I guess so so like what what I what I think what I hear this being is it doesn't have internal intentionality. It might have external intentionality. Right. And, well and 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 what we see as its intentionality is not necessarily the thing that it's actually like under the hood trying to do. Like we experience it differently because of our psychological biases around the anthropomorphization right. of these systems. And and because it's so I guess, really yeah. good at mimicking in those ways. I mean I guess so I guess there it seems like it's the same problem and answer is the general trust problem, which is if, you know, to, to paraphrase Daniel Dennett, who I, I don't love for a lot of reasons, but I think the intentional stance is a valuable piece, right? Like if it is useful, if, if it, like if you get a better result to some degree, treating it like an intentional agent, then it is an intentional agent. There's no other conversation to be had. So again, like if it, you know, 99.9% of the time, its intentions appear good and it can explain why it is choosing to do that, you know, why it's choosing not to write that Nazi shit, then like, who the fuck cares if internally its intentions are different as long as they are that reliable and understandable externally. Where, where I think it's really important though is that the, you know, it, when you understand, and, and I know this is just me kind of going off into left field, so apologies for, for the rant. The Im, Imagine that that chat data set had all of the same things, didn't want to be a Nazi and everything else. But the moment that you bring up ducks, it becomes incredibly racist about, a, about <laughs> you know, anything that's settled not to. The, the moment that you've mentioned ducks, there's okay. no reason for it. But it, it very quickly, you know, that's a really easy thing for an AI to figure out is, oh, when ducks are mentioned, all of a sudden I'm allowed to be, a, I'm supposed to be a raging racist. Okay. I cannot imagine a situation where, where I would in, correctly anticipate a system that I think has intentionality to kind of work with me in a reasonable way and that it's aligned suddenly becoming a racist when it sees talk of ducks. But it's really easy for me to train an LLM to do that because I, mean, I, I think it's like a logical reason that a human would end up there, like hypnotism or something or like uh, abuse, sure. you know, like you can do weird shit to human minds. So but my point I guess, I guess I'm not it, convinced that, like, you know, just because it can have a psychotic break or hallucinate <laughs> vividly at some points. Like, I hallucinate vividly all the time every time I go to sleep. You know, like, think about all the shit you do in your dreams. Like, your AIs aren't, aren't doing anything remotely that weird a lot of the time. And yet we treat you as reasonable when you wake up. So I guess, you know, like, I don't, I don't see, like, particular instances as undermining its intentionality when it's reliable 99% of the time. That, and that, to me, again, would be a situation where social learning is going to fix it quickly, right? The first person that starts acting racist towards after, you know, hearing about ducks and gets a negative feedback, it's going to, you know, learn to stop doing that. Sure. But, and, and, and that's where I do think that, you know, once again, really the problem is you need to have monitoring. Some, some way to, mm-hmm. and, and you need humans in the system mm-hmm. along the way uh, because it's, it's, it's fine if you can catch it. But as, as we start... Um, attaching these things to each other. There was a problem recently that, um, mm-hmm. what was it? Uh, Google's Bard uh, was um, 
was uh, referring back to answers being generated by Quora's LLM that mm-hmm. were wrong as mm-hmm. an authoritative source. And so we had LLMs generating wrong information being referenced by another LLM as an authoritative source. Uh, right. Not unlike humans sharing information around in their conspiracy groups or whatever, but like, yeah. Ab- absolutely. It's just but a matter of scale, right? It's a matter of scale um, and, and visibility. Because as, as we glue these things together, it becomes less and less visible to us what's happening at the, the seams between them. And Which we just... We, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's just an interestingly like kind of point, right? Not in a critical or like a condescending kind of way, but in a like technology scales things. And if you scale things, you might be scaling the wrong thing in the wrong way in a, in a way that you can't get back under control or something. Yeah. And, and we, human systems have a lot of kind of quiet self-correction because humans tend to be wrong in uncorrelated ways. And we can see how things go wrong when when the systems that we work within start correlating those wrong ways by like getting all the people with similar bad ideas into a virtual space. Mm-hmm. Um, but n- none of us have experienced any of that over the last few years. Right. And there's been no accelerating effect whatsoever. No. Um, we're running a little short on time, but there was something else particularly voidy that you mentioned before the show. And I want to set you up for this. You've been so praising of human beings and their ability to observe and regulate and things. <laughs> um, do you want to explain why it would be that like medical providers would prefer to just build their own AIs in-house, even though that seems like an absurd not division of labor? Yeah, um, you know, there's, um, you know, and I'm, I'm not a regulatory expert, but there, there's mm-hmm. a lower regulatory bar to bringing, to developing an AI system in-house. And, you know, if you're, you're a large medical system, you develop your own AI to sort of like highlight things in ultrasound images or make recommendations to doctors, you're not going out and marketing that to other people. Um, and so, in general, that tends to not fall under the FDA's um, purview and for scrutiny. And so it's the kind of thing that, like, if there were a medical complaint, then there could be investigations around it, but they don't have to go out and get approval ahead of time to use it generally. Um, I, I, I want to speak in general terms because very much- not, You're not sure, expert. but yeah. Not a doctor. I'm just, I'm, I'm a guy talking to lots of people working on these problems. So, but the FDA the primarily is- Focused on marketing of things, not well, it, it's whether or not you can mark, market a uh, um, uh, medical device. So uh, when you do a, um, a submission, it's called a five ten k. It's uh, I believe it's a, a pre market um, submission is what it's called. If you actually look at it, uh, specifically mm-hmm. like your ability to bring it to market to sell. It's not you know your ability to use it. Yourself. Is this true of like technology in general in medical stuff? Like if a hospital like invents its own piece of technology, it doesn't try to market it. It could just. I, I'm not sure how that works. If I'm being honest, okay. I've, I've um, I have never heard of someone trying to do that. Um, sure. And and I do know that there are um, there are rules around like uh, um, investigatory uh, medical devices and how you have to um, disclose them and all these sorts of things. But uh, it certainly doesn't. Like I, I am aware, I, I know people at different health systems that have built tools for automatically segmenting anatomy and things like that, that are in use by um, radiologists at that facility that have never been shown to a regulator. So theoretically, someone could build an AI murder hospital and have it making decisions for an entire hospital. And as long as no patient ever demanded an investigation, that could just go on. As far as I know. As far as you know. And I'm, I'm not going to say yes. bur- <laughs> Right. But like, is there any like substantial burden to tell 
patience when an AI is being used in their medical, like, everything <laughs> to the best of my knowledge no uh, generally you don't have to disclose like the details of the tools like like you know when when you get an mri you're not telling them that it was this sure. particular manufacturer's system i mean the the incredible amount of um, complexity that goes into taking the data off of an mri and turning it into a 3d scan involves some things we would see as ai sure that are absolutely not just pure math um, and uh, Modeling you don't have to disclose that because we tested it and it's uh, you know it was sold to them and yeah you have the it reproduces some known mm -hmm. good state and great. So it's right, a weird so... world we live in. No, no one really knows how to regulate these things at scale. Um, all of the regulators sure. are currently putting out requests for comments from people. They have sort of best practices out there. Um, and it's uh we're learning and we're there are probably going to be mistakes along the way but i get it i was many. yeah i was researching for an uh, gpt education talk and came across the fun fact that like like 60 percent of universities have no one in charge of like the usage of ai within their university or it's like there's just no one no one who has like the mix of expertise and like position of authority in which to do anything about any of this it seems like and the technology is just going to keep accelerating well and how how do you even manage it i mean i mm -hmm. i can run llama 2 uh facebook's uh you know gpt clone that's open source on my macbook mm -hmm. i can just download it and run it right There's, you know a bunch of different ways i can do it. i can fine-tune it to do whatever i want there you go on hugging face which is a big model repository and you can see thousands of different fine-tuned variants of the llama models um for all sorts of different scenarios this, this stuff's just it's out there do you have a like i know it's very hard to think time scales or anything how do you feel like this stuff is going to change the world in the next few years if at all uh most likely it it'll you'll start to see it in a lot of um like streamlined streamlining things that seemed um hard to streamline before so you're starting to see it in like coding tools you're starting to see it in word processor expect like powerpoint to start making recommendations or giving you a thing that you can just talk to and say hey i kind of want this slide to be blah and blah and blah and it'll give you some you know possible ways like it's, it's going to be those sorts of things where it's where a, a, the ability for you to just talk to it or interact with it um, will sub substantially simplify how you interact with these systems that are very slow and hard to, to work with. Um, mm -hmm. In the background, I think you're going to start seeing more sort of automated integrations. So a, lo a lot more things that talk to other things because uh, one of the the sort of coolest, weirdest things about um, GPT-4 is you can write plugins for it without ever writing code. You just hmm. point it at the API and the documentation, and it says, "Great, I know how to use that now. Thank you." Weird. Yep. And then you and you give it like a text description of what it's what it should be used for, and it's like, "Cool, I can now use Salesforce." It does seem like it can learn very, very, very quickly. I, well, I mean, the, you know, we've we've spent billions and billions of dollars building these careful application programming interfaces for all of these systems that are very detailed in allowing us to interact with them, but require a human being to learn them and to, to write a bunch of code. ChatGPT can read all that stuff and then can just send the requests and it's fine. Or GPT-4, I should say. 
Um, so I, I, this going to be a, the world's going to be a lot more integrated. Um, I for one welcome our AI overlords as always. <laughs> um, so all right, well we are unfortunately out of time for the main show, but I do still have to torture you. Um, oh so this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. And Delightful. your GPT friends cannot help you here. I have checked. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to give you a list of things. Are you going to tell me these things are real or not real? Those are your only options. You cannot hedge. You cannot give a lengthy explanation while you try to come up with your final conclusion. You just have to go with real or not real. All right. Well, what in ready? our last hour would convince you I can give not lengthy responses? Oh, actually, you've done relatively well in terms of length of response. I'll give you credit on that one. Uh, let me start, of course. I have to check. Is anything real? Yes. All right. Let's find out what's real. So first of all, bodies, real or not real? Yes, real. Minds? Real. Free will? Not real. Luck? Real. Demons? Not real. Afterlives? Not real. Truth? Real. Beauty? Real. Justice? Real. And finally, hope. Real. Quite the realist, sir. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, so, how was so, that for you? How do you feel? I, I really want to know whether demons were psychological or physical, because my answer would change. Yes, and the answer is both, and you got it wrong. Good job. Uh, no, that one is there for some very special friends in the sense-making world. Um, well, Bryce, this has been wonderful. Um, uh, I think you'll hang around and we'll chat a little bit more and I can torture you some more about GPT. Um, hopefully folks can come join us over in the VIP. And if not, thank you all so much for listening. I, there's nowhere to send them to on your part, I believe, right? You have nothing no, you want to really plug here other than go get tested for whatever illnesses people have using technology. Yeah. Just a guy who does AI work. Um, yeah. Yeah, All right. <laughs> or you are someone simulating that. Who knows? We'll never know. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bryce. And thanks so much, folks, for listening. Pleasure. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our Archon and Archduke-level patrons. Thanks to our Archon-level patrons, Void-Pilled Eldrick Farmer, Alex Beneshek, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, and Grumble Grumble. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with my co-host Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out my wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also join the Philosophers in Space slash Embrace the Void Facebook group or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, whatever your internal states of awareness, you are the void and the void is you. Mm -hmm.